this week on the Back Table Podcast. You know, she had a hip fracture and ended up dying of the complications of a hip fracture. And, and at that time, I mean, this was a while back, but, you know, her mother, grandmother, kind of the same thing. People chalked it up, oh, this is kind of normal stuff that happens with aging. Right. You know, I'll agree with that. That is normal stuff that happens with aging, but it doesn't have mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, if we have a medication to prevent it now, it certainly doesn't have to. And most of the time, the area that we see this in is people have already had a fracture. And so there's there's really no excuse to kind of do a swing and a miss on it. You, you know for sure they have a defining event and you know for sure that defining event qualifies them for any insurance for an anabolic bone agent to be able to qualify for and receive that medication by definition. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your home for all things IR and otherwise minimally invasive. First, a brief message from our sponsor. Protect your most valuable asset, the skill and ability to practice your medical specialty. One out of three individuals become disabled during their career. Be prepared by establishing a specialty-specific disability insurance policy from the experts at DI4MDs. They represent all the major disability insurance companies that provide individual policies for physicians. Special discounts are available for all physicians, residents, and the military. Whether you have no coverage, or to compare and improve your current coverage, or take advantage of the new higher monthly benefit, contact them today at www.di4mds.com. Again, that's wwwdi 4 mds.com or call them at 888-934-4637. Again, that's 888-934-4637. Now back to the episode. This is your host, Jacob Fleming. We're back with part two in this series on osteoporosis and treatment of vertebral compression fractures with Dr. Doug Beal. The other thing too, I hear a lot is this is something that is reimbursable this is something that needs to be part of a practice because I hear all the time, all the, oh, I don't, I don't have time to do that. That's ubiquitously common as an excuse not to treat these patients. Well, you know what? I do have time. I, I have plenty of time to treat these people. And I would submit to you that I treat as many fractures as, as anybody. And the way that we work this is that I mentioned we have somewhat abbreviated protocol. We don't test a bunch of labs. We don't do bone markers. We don't do anything very sophisticated, but here, here's what we do. So we see the patient back over the fracture. It's a two to four week visit. We do a DEXA scan. We do injection training by the nurse and we send them out for home health. This is uh, billed out as a G0180 code, Medicare code. We see them back at year one. This is a nurse visit, another DEXA scan. See them back at year two, another DEXA scan and a follow-up treatment plan. So what I was doing, counting on my fingers there, these are nine CPT codes. And by doing this, and if you keep track of the way that people do it, typically they'll see somebody for treatment of their vertebral fracture, and then they'll see them uh, a couple weeks afterwards, and then that's it. They don't do anything else. So if you keep track of that, the only visit that I see them at is year two for a 15-minute follow-up visit. Essentially, that's a victory lap, right? Done great. It's, and here's what we're going to do as a following treatment plan. We <clears throat> give them a prescription of, uh, you know, 104 tablets of a lendronate. We'll see you in two years for your final DEXA scan and then you're out. And, or 
the monthly romazosumab that they come in through a drive-through window. We inject them and send them away, not really drive-through window, but we we do. My uh, my nurse gives them the inject infinity injection, and then they, which is also so. Each one of these things you can code and bill for. It's a reimbursable event, and you know it's not it's not a whole lot of money, but it is sustainable. It does keep the operation sustained, and it takes very little time. It also has the patient feel comfortable. You're trying to deal with everything that they have. They're very confident in your ability to take care of the, all of their problems. As consequently, they, they like that better. And they send their friends and they send the family members. And, and your, your level of competence to them is quite obvious because you, you really do know what you're doing. And so you get better outcomes by treating their underlying bone disorder. You're able to uh, recoup reimbursement expenses, which is profitable for the practice. So in the end, for pa patients that come in and for the, the people who say, the physicians that say, I don't have time to do this, I'm not sure what about getting better outcomes and making a profit is bad. And the overarching service that you're providing is much better than that patient can get virtually any place in the world. Certainly better than the average practice around Oklahoma City, where I practice. Um, Dallas, where you are, because these places are very closely located. And I'm very familiar with the practice in and around the Dallas metro area. And I don't know anybody that does this to any high level degree in that metro area. There's a few pockets of excellence, but I think it, it needs to be propagated. I think this model needs to be propagated. I think it needs to be uh, the awareness of this problem that is ubiquitously common needs to be brought to the forefront. Because from the people that I see, do you know how many, what percentage of patients that I see with vertebral fractures that is number one, a defining event of osteoporosis, number two, characteristic and quite common. There's a million of these fractures a year in the United States. It's the most common major fragility fracture by a factor of two. Do you know how many people are on anabolic agents when I see them initially at the time of their first fracture? It's got to be close to zero. Yeah. It's 1%, literally 1%. Patients are on anabolic agents. So, I mean, we're, we're not doing a poor job. We're just out to lunch. Sure. We're, we're vacant. Mm -hmm. And th this is something that is, that is right in the middle of our wheelhouse that, you know, and all I ask the practitioners to do is to first personalize it. So how would you want your mother or grandmother, or your aunt to be treated? And, you know, 80% of these people are, are female. The other 20% are males. Caucasian Asian males. So these are, you know, statistically one in two women and one in four men will have a fragility fracture in their lifetime. So, you know, men are, we emphasize the women because that's the majority of who they are, but uh, men are absolutely affected as well. Absolutely. It uh, seems extremely underdiagnosed in uh, the male population, especially. And one thing I wanted to touch on is uh, obviously you're seeing patients predominantly who've already had a VCF. But for just kind of the population at large, how should we be screening these patients? What are, uh, are there kind of task force recommendations or uh, recommendations from other societies in regards to osteoporosis screening? Yeah, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna answer a different question than what you just asked, if you don't mind. The screening recommendations are, are, are just fine. I mean, I think the FRAX recommendation that puts people at you know, high risk of fracture, I mean, 
anything above 3% for hip and 20% major osteoporotic. And then, you know, but by the time uh, people are, are 65 and over, they need to at least have a baseline screening exam. But what I really would like to emphasize though, is that we are doing an incredibly poor job at screening people. We're doing an incredibly poor job about diagnosing osteoporosis. And one of the challenge about screening people, there's WHO recommendations for DEXA scanning and T-scores. And that's what people know. That's a good thing and it's a bad thing because a T-score of a minus 2.5 or less is osteoporosis greater than a minus one to minus 2.5 is osteopenia. That's as much of a problem to me as it is a benefit for diagnosis of those two entities, low bone density, osteoporosis. Because people think they have this misconception that they think if just because they have osteopenia doesn't, they think they're, they're okay. I don't, I don't have osteoporosis. So I tell people, I tell my colleagues, don't worship at the altar of the DEXA scanner because it's a mediocre and poor estimator of bone strength. It's very bad for bone, for estimating how strong somebody's bones are. So I inevitably I'll have women that come in that will have a vertebral fracture. I said, you do know that you have osteoporosis, right? No, no. Oh no, I have osteopenia. Well, okay. So that's one of the four categories. The American Academy of Clinical Endocrinologists, American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, and the ACE criteria have four listed. So a T-score of a minus 2.5 or less, that's one category. The other three are standalone. The first category right at the top of the list is a fragility fracture is a defining event of osteoporosis in and of itself. That's just it. You can fall from a standing height, you can break a finger or a toe, anything else is osteoporosis. And in terms of the GLOW study, Global Longitudinal Osteoporosis Study for Women, the only thing that really wasn't significantly associated with osteoporosis is a distal clavicle fracture. Mm. So, you know, that's the only thing. So apart from these, everything else with a fragility fracture, low velocity injury is a defining event of osteoporosis. People can't get that through their minds, they wrap their minds around this, that this is a standalone criteria. Then you have uh, a minus one to minus 2.5 plus increased frac score or the, uh, that range plus the presence of a, a fracture. So these are all standalone criteria. Let me give you a, a real world example. A hospital in Oklahoma City has as a diagnostic category to be able to treat somebody with vertebral compression fracture to call it an osteoporotic fracture, they have to have a T-score of a minus 2.5 or less. Otherwise, they don't get treated. Once you let that sink in, yeah. just that criteria inappropriately used on its own to be able to treat somebody's osteoporotic fracture that's clearly osteoporotic, that will not be allowed in their system. Hmm. You know, the first question that comes to mind is, I wonder how many people are dying from deconditioning complications based on their fracture. I wonder how many people are suffering morbidities because it, it has to be countless numbers. So by using that as a standalone criteria, do you know how many patients that are not being treated? So how many people come in with a fragility fracture and have a T-score of greater than minus 2.5? Definitely not all of them. <laughs> so, yeah, you would think, so, you, you know better than most because you heard discussions like this. So two-thirds of the patients that come in with a fragility fracture 
have a T-score of a minus two or greater. 82% of patients that come in with a fragility fracture do not have a T-score of minus 2.5 or more negative. They have a 82%, eight out of 10, 82 out of 100 patients have a T-score that is not in the osteoporotic range. So by doing that, by creating a criteria, you eliminate 80% of patients that come in for treatment for an osteoporotic vertebral fracture by using inappropriately using a single category out of the four ACE and AACE criteria. So th that's happening right now in our area, a major hospital and hospital system within my area in Oklahoma City is using that as a treatment criteria. And the countless number of people are not being treated for the vertebral fracture. Yeah, it's, that's just the major problem. And I, I think um, we could probably have an entire episode talking about uh, inappropriate insurer and, and policy bases for vertebral augmentation. And it's, I think it goes back to um, the need to really think critically as a clinician. You know, the bone does not care if its uh, T-score is minus 2.4. It's not going to break until, until 2.5. This is a pathologic process of bone mineral density loss. And those categories, it's just uh, sensitivity and specificity. They do not define the disease. And so when you're, when you're the one seeing these patients and, and treating the vertebral compression fractures, I think you understand it on a different level than just looking at the numbers on a DEXA report. We can get lost in that. The numbers are the numbers are good and bad. They are certainly good and bad because they're bad because it it, it imparts a safety to the patient that really shouldn't be there. The, the uh, peace of mind. Oh, my T score is okay. Well, your T score is okay, but your bones are still very weak, very still very osteoporotic. So one of the, one of the issues about this is we this DEXA scan is associated with WHO criteria. That's why people tend to use it. That's habitually what we use. It turns out, you know, we can uh, establish a T-score with anything. This, these are standard deviation scores. You can measure bone mineral density with MRI, uh, ultrasound. Uh, you can measure with qualitative, ultra, uh, qualitative CT, and you can do finite element analyses to get the calculations of bone strength that are exceedingly accurate. So it's not that we don't have the capability of doing it. We do have the capability of doing it. Ironically, you know, we, we build these tall buildings and they have a certain amount of sway at the top so they don't break in the middle. And the plane, if you, if you ride a 787, you'll look out and you'll see the wing kind of go up and down a little bit. So structurally, we can engineer great things and, and we can calculate the, the, the strength of the metals that go in this to make sure we don't have stress risers and we can do finite element analyses on these to make sure we have the appropriate matching of strength. We can do finite element analysis and bone to, to estimate the strength completely, but we just don't do it based on the current recommendations. And that's why we're left with a scenario of using a DEXA scan and a T-score. And it is a terrible estimate of bone strength. But yet, that's that's what we've become accustomed to. So to get past that, that's why we have the the criteria for osteoporosis. Or there's four designed to be used as standalone. Each one are designed to be used as a standalone for osteoporosis. So you, if you see somebody click, you know, grandma reaches over, picks up a shoe, empty shoebox, and fractures her L1. It's osteoporosis, right? Period. Full stop. No doubt. 
Uh, and we have to be able to use this despite the fact that our T-score, you know, might be of minus 1.1. And this is a very common scenario of diabetes, osteomalacia. There's lots of different things that will give you falsely elevated T-scores because this is a grams per square centimeter. This is a planar measurement. This is not a volumetric measurement, a grams per cubic centimeter. So these are, these are things that over the course of time, you know, can and, and will be modified. I don't worry about that nearly as much as I worry about the fact that seemingly nobody that I treat for vertebral compression fractures are, are being treated or screened for their underlying osteoporosis. You know, somebody comes in, thin Caucasian female, Northern European descent, uh, history of intermittent prednisone use, smokes, <laughs> and has not been screened. So this is, and this is if the repercussions of that disease process were, weren't as significant, meaning hip and spine fracture as they are, I'd be okay with it. But so we just, we just have to do better. And it's, it's to the point where, you know, it's just no more excuses. Mm -hmm. Just do better. And for like for uh, SIR, ASSR, uh, some ASNR, some of the societies like this, even AAOS, I visit them. I do ISLs, Biospine. You know, I, I, I've become a little bit unapologetic about explaining the need for this to be done, explaining the good that you can do for people, explaining how to do it, the kind of the organization behind what you need to be able to do this is very basic, very simple and fundamental. And the ability to, to make an impact is absolutely maximal, you know, in, in terms of the ability, uh, it's magic miracles and kyphoplasty, not necessarily in that order. I mean, what else gives you on the average a nine to 1.4 pain reduction? I mean, yeah. there's virtually, virtually nothing and it's, it's durable and permanent. And there's uh, no such thing as failure of kyphoplasty. There can be a failure of recognition of another problem, like an adjacent level fracture. It could be failure of recognition, postural fatigue syndrome, but there's, you know, the failure is not with the kyphoplasty. The failure is inability to recognize the failure happens here and it happens here. It doesn't, doesn't happen with the ability to treat right. because if you stabilize a painful fracture, the patients get better completely. And the thing that makes them better is treating the underlying disorder. And we talk about the anabolic bone agents, parenthetic comment about this is people, people don't understand it even to the very basic and fundamental principles that Every single anti-resorptive agent decreases bone turnover, except for one, Avista. All, everything else decreases bone turnover, sometimes as much as 95% after the first year, really decreases bone turnover. That's what gives rise to problems with atypical femoral fractures or pelvic fractures, osteonecrosis of the jaw. When you shut down bone turnover too much, it gives rise to problems with, that you see with, with low bone turnover. Two anabolic PTH. They increase bone turnover, they increase production, and they increase resorption. It's just resorption is decreased less, is decreased more. It's not as active as bone production. And this delta here is what gives rise to the new bone. So both anabolic PTH increase bone production, bone resorption, just production more than resorption. So to optimally use these things, you kind of really know, have to know how they're used and what they do to bone turn, turnover. And these are simple fundamental rules. Let me give you an example. So proleum, denosumab. So if you stay on alendronate or any of the other bisphosphonates too long, more than five years, you can slow bone turnover down to the point where it gives rise to 
atypical femoral fractures and other fractures that you shouldn't have. So people give patients a, the, the so-called drug holiday where they, they stop using it after five years, which is totally appropriate. Um, Prolia is not like that. It's a rank ligand inhibitor. And so you inhibit rank ligand, it stays low. The bone mineral density comes up. It's not an anabolic agent. It's a stop the loss drug, but it does okay for increasing bone density. If you stop Prolia, you stop inhibiting the rank ligand. The rank ligand goes to the roof and a portion of these patients, their bone mineral density will cascade down. And at that point in time, you can throw anabolics at it. You can throw bisphosphonates at it. There's not much you can do. And the bone mineral density goes down, giving rise to multiple vertebral fractures or additional fragility fractures, so-called rebound effect. Once you start purely, you can't come off of it unless you come off of it in conjunction with a bisphosphonate that's given first to prevent this or to uh, mitigate the effects of this rebound effect. The anabolics, you can do it too, but you have to give six month overlap of an anabolic before uh, you take somebody off Prolia. And this is something that is, I would submit to you, Jacob, this is something that people don't realize, they don't know. Because I still see patients all the time that come in with vertebral fractures that have been just off their Prolia. So, you know, I didn't feel like going in, felt like it's done its job you know, based on their non-randomized, non-placebo controlled study, their own uninformed opinion, they just want to decide to stop taking it. And so they're in rebound effect and now they have multiple vertebral fractures because that's, you know, they, they come to us because that's where the fractures go. And so I see this a lot and the, people just don't understand this. And so to use the medications, it's incredibly important to use them, the timing of the medications, the order of the medications. There's an article by Cosman called The Treatment Sequence Matters. And that's very appropriately named because, you know, I never use a lindernate and I badmouthed it saying that it doesn't do much for spine fractures, quoting the Lieberman trial. And I'll, I'll stay by that 100%. But I use a lindernate every day after a belloperitide. So Timlos first, followed by Fosmax second. And if you do that, the fracture protection is propagated from the initial anabolic protection, the bone density goes up and it appears to be durable. That benefit appears to be very durable. And so this is something that if you do the opposite, if you do the, the, the bisphosphonate first, it blunts the effect of the anabolic. And these medications are approved for two years only. So if you give a, an, a bisphosphonate first, you go from 12% bone mineral density to say maybe you know, uh, seven or eight percent bone mineral density within two years. So you have shortchanged their effect. You, you have taken away a portion of that gain that that patient could have had if you had just known that it blunts the effect of the anabolic agent. The other thing, too, is that if you use the uh, whatever anaerobic afterwards, you propagate the treatment effect. You make them better, mm -hmm. and they don't have that same. They don't have any blunting. They have continued fracture protection. And by doing that, my examples, the two plus two and two plus one, you can get incredible bone mineral density gains. You can get cr incredible fracture protection to the point where we're at disease state elimination category. That's amazing. And uh, that's something I, I do want to ask a follow-up question on is uh, kind of the, the sequence of medical treatment. I'm very interested in this because 
A family member of mine does have osteoporosis and has been following along with the DEXA scans and been on bisphosphonates. And so her physician, her primary care physician said, well, it's time to get off the bisphosphonate. Your jaw is going to fall off. And um, her uh, OB-GYN said, no, you're one of the candidates to stay on it. But so she's uh, kind of stayed sort of at the same level, you know, no, no events yet. But what you're describing to me is tell me, you know, we need to be considering probably a, an anabolic first approach. And so my question is someone who's been on bisphosphonates for a while now, how do you approach that situation uh, to, you know, bring in the anabolics? What she needs to do is, is uh, depending on her age and some of the other factors, let me give you just a good general uh, rule is I, I don't want to uh, get too much uh, personal information since it's a relative of yours. So let's make her, let's make her 69 years old, 68 years old. So uh, not doing well, probably osteopenia, borderline osteoporosis, maybe her T-score is a minus 2.3, 2.4. So she needs to get off the bisphosphonate. If she's not improving, that's a, that's a failure of bisphosphonate. If her T-score is not improving on treatment or if somebody has a fracture, uh, this is a, called a failure of, of, of antiresorptive therapy. So what she needs to do is get off uh, for at least a year and then put on an anabolic agent. Because depending on her, to somebody at 68 years old that has a T-score of minus 2.4, especially if they're of the appropriate demographic, and if they're a relative of yours, they will be. A, you know, this, this person is a thin Caucasian female, age 68, T-score of minus 2.4. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something waiting to happen, especially if there's risk factors. So if she's got one uh, failure of anaresorptive therapy, that's a, that is a qualifier officially for an anabolic bone agent. If she's got another risk factor, I mean, demographics, of course, especially for FRAX risk is high, which it probably is. And anything else, any other risk factor at all, and I won't go, won't go through those, you know what those are. Yeah, I mean, it's an ana anabolic, and, and I, people come in, and usually with having had a first fracture, and I say, well, you know, we have two different choices. Uh, the osteoporosis medications come in two different varieties. And I do this to him. I said, stop the last drug or a build them up drug. So what do you think you need? And the patients get it right every time. <laughs> well, I need a build them up drug, yeah. right? Yeah, that's that's right. The the doctors need to do the stop the loss, build them up. They our colleagues need to kind of get with the program. And if you if you have a T-score of minus 2.3, 2.4, and you're not improving on, on anaerosorptive therapy, why has that not been changed? Just stop yeah. it. You know, don't, don't continue to do something that's not working. Continue to do the same thing, expecting a different outcome. You know what that is, Einstein's definition of right. insanity. So let's just stop that and stop, keep her off for a year to two years. Somewhere in that range, put her back on anabolic. And, you know, for me, the anabolic agents that I think that work the best that have hip and spine fracture protection are the PTH analogs. And I always go with those. If you're going to, if you're going to use an anabolic, use one that has the ability to do the best job that you can. Because for episodic treatment, I mean, why not? If you can, if you can do a two plus two on her, two years of PTH analog, two years of lendronate, Increase her bone mineral density, eighteen percent. It's not, it's not unusual for people that are still relatively active and and get exercise to bump that up to twenty percent in the spine. 
this that's it. That's that could be a lifetime benefit. Put her back on screening every two to five years, looking for a bump down in bone mineral density. Maybe we need to do something. But you know, this is this is a problem that can be solved. So instead of just kind of diddling around with it and keeping on with an anti-resorptive that's not doing any good, why wouldn't we not just kind of solve the problem? Take especially if there's a family history of fractures. Typically, there is. My family, there have been a few women that have broken their hip later on in life. And this is kind of something that people just uh, chalk up as normal. I mean, it, so, so my grandfather, my, my grandmother had a hip fracture. If she were alive today, she would be um, 108 years old. But, you know, she had a hip fracture and ended up dying of the complications of a hip fracture. And, and at that time, I mean, this was a while back, but you know, her mother, grandmother, kind of the same thing. People chalked it up, oh, this is kind of normal stuff that happens with aging. Right. You know, I'll agree with that. That is normal stuff that happens with aging, but it doesn't have mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if we have a medication to prevent it now, it certainly doesn't have to. And most of the time, the area that we see this in is people have already had a fracture. And so there's there's really no excuse to kind of do a swing and a miss on it. You you know for sure that they they have a defining event and you know for sure that defining event qualifies them for any insurance for an anabolic bone agent to be able to qualify for and receive that medication by definition. Absolutely. So just so much good information we've talked about in regards to the diagnosis and medical treatment of osteoporosis. And since this is an IR podcast, we are going to pivot a little bit and talk a a little bit more about the interventions. But before we do that, I want to play a quick game of fact or fiction. And so these are, uh, you know, one-liners possibly seen on Twitter, maybe in uh, first aid for step one, uh, kind of things that get propagated. And so, so uh, we've, we've talked about a few of these already, but I want to hear your, your rebuttal or validation or, you know, explanation of this claim. So number one, uh, we talked about this a little bit. Bisphosphonates should be discontinued after five years or your jaw will necrose and fall off. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, that's talking about osteonecrosis of the jaw. So, you know, I don't see that very much, but I, I play uh, basketball with my dentist and I asked him about it one time. He said, um, I said, do you see that? He said, yeah, I see it frequently. So ONJ is still one of those unusual occurrences that doesn't happen very often, but it does happen with anything that slows bone turnover. It happens with bisphosphonates. It can happen with um, denosumab or perlia. It can happen with uh, avenity. Even though it's an anabolic, remember, those two lines go down below the baseline to finish up as an anti-resorptive. Consequently, you can get ONJ. But no, it's uh, it's one of those things we we stop it because the majority of people will not have ONJ, but the the concept of having an atypical femoral fracture is a lot more common. If you stay on it and you slow bone turnover down, that's, that is a clear and apparent risk. Absolutely. And as we talked about a moment ago, you know, if, if a patient's been on for bisphosphonates for five years and perhaps the thing we should be thinking more about is the, the treatment failure and how we should be thinking about an anabolic agent rather than kind of this uh, ONJ, which is an issue and it does happen and it's not to downplay that. But I would say just from my own experience, what can I tell you about my formal education in med school and training and what I learned about osteoporosis? and its treatment, it was the ONJ. That always gets emphasized because it's it's easily testable and it's good to be aware yeah. of, but that's probably not our biggest enemy in the fight against osteoporosis. 
it's emphasized way out of proportion. And so, you know, really what uh, we're thinking about now is the consideration. If you compare the two, you, you do antiresorptive, you, you wait for failure, on, and only the failures go on to anabolic. Well, instead of using anabolics first, because as it turns out, it's better at fracture protection. It's cheaper in the long run to have less fractures because these are better medications. And then, then to use the antiresorptives as maintenance drugs after that. So the, the current way of thinking of, of it is exactly opposite of how we've been thinking of it because it works better. It's more sustainable. It's cheaper, better for the patient in terms of fracture reduction. And it's, and it's, it's all the way around a much more effective utilization is anabolics first. Absolutely. So my next question. This is a real softball for you, but we got to uh, got to transition into the next part. And so, the the factor fiction here is tibroplasty is no better than sham. We should just brace these people and get them up and walking. Yeah. So, people that are still fixated on these uh, New England Journal articles that have been downgraded uh, to level two evidence and widely discredited, they uh, you know we've had what about vapor? What about vope? What about Vertos 5? So let me give you an example of this. So all of these, these articles that I mentioned, these manuscripts, demonstrate statistically significantly better improvement in pain and function of just garden variety vertebroplasty over sham. So for the listeners that haven't heard of these, you know, these are more recent articles than the New England Journal article, but they're not controversial. They say what everybody knows to be true. Vertebroplasty does great for patients. It reduces pain, it improves function, and it is a highly effective procedure. So that doesn't grab the headlines of Good Morning America or the Wall Street Journal. I mean, it, it's not very sensational because it's just what people know to be true. So let me give you this. So Vertos five is a vertebroplasty versus sham for patients with chronic fractures. Turns out that there was statistically significantly improved pain and function in these patients with vertebroplasty compared to the sham for chronic fractures. So explain to me how that works. So typically we, we would do uh, subacute fractures, leaving out the acute this last year the Medicare LCD was changed to include acute fractures, primarily because of Bill Clark's vapor trial and another uh, trial done by Yang comparing uh, acute or hyperacute fractures versus uh, non-surgical management or sham and found that there was great benefit of this. And so uh, the Medicare carriers and uh, the committee said, okay, yeah, we, we should probably acute acute fractures in there. Well, so now we're going to have a level one trial that also supports treatment of chronic fractures as long as it's persistently painful. So the message to this is that, you know, it's science is the same as anything else, garbage in, garbage out. And if you, if you don't, so one of the New England Journal articles, as, as an example, I'm going to give, give you one example. The average amount of cement that was used in vertebroplasty was 2.8 cc's. No, not going to so, cut it. Not even close. I have a chart in the Comprehensive Guide for Vertebral Augmentation, the book. We have a whole chapter in there about how much cement you should use. So, uh, Jay, do you know what 2.8 cc's is adequate to treat? It's adequate to treat uh, T6 and above and women only. Well, how many of those were present in that trial? That's right, zero. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, if 
one of the things we have to do is we have to make sure that we know uh, to enroll patients, uh, practitioners that actually know how to do the, an appropriate treatment of the patient. These are not structurally sufficient enough to support uh, anything. So Vapor Voke, Voke Vertos 5 <clears throat> for uh, Vope, subacute fractures, Vapor acute fractures, Vertos 5 chronic fractures, compared against sham, all statistically significant benefits. So let's not refer over to the, the trials that have been downgraded and discredited widely. Let's kind of refer to the, some of the new data that covers the gamut of tr the treatment perspective to really know, and it confirms what we already and always knew to be true anyway, is that the, the, the procedure of vertebroplasty works incredibly well. Absolutely. And everything that you've just described, it really illustrates um, how crucial it is for us to, to know the data and further to know the, the older data that while to us, it's, it's obviously widely discredited. We see this all the time. We see this pop up on Twitter almost daily. And luckily we have Dr. Beal to fight the untruths uh, related to this, but it's, it, it always, almost always seems to be perpetuated by people who are not treating vertebral compression fractures. Uh, but I've seen, you know, a few other people as well, maybe more conservative physiatrists who just say, just brace them, just get them up and walking, you know? And so what do you have to say about bracing? So Jacob, I'm, um, I'm going to, you mentioned the word conservative, so <laughs> I was at a, a talk in, in Denver one time, and this was a few years back, and I kept early, earlier on in my career, I kept referring to non-surgical management as conservative care. And the audience was uh, uh, Courtney Brown, one of the great, great spine surgeons in that area and of, and of a nation worldwide, very reputable guy and a wonderful individual. At the end, he said, uh, you know, I have a real objection with something that you're saying. I said, you know, to myself, I was saying, oh, great. <laughs> so super great. Courtney Brown is going to get up and, and, uh, and on trash you. Yeah. One, one of the things I, yeah, it's a great, great start to the question and answer session. And he got up and said, you know, I really don't think it's appropriate for you to be calling non-surgical management conservative care. He said, you've made great points that this non-operative management is not conservative that it puts people at risk of morbidity, mortality. They do poorly when treated. Uh, you've gone through the fact that the, the bracing literature is not only not great, but it it's, doesn't support what we do. Would you consider calling this from here on out non-surgical management? And so I said, you know, Dr. Brown, that's a great point. Henceforth, I shall never refer to this as conservative care, it shall be non-surgical management. And, you know, I always like to, to say, if you do something radical, like actually read the literature on this, <laughs> the papers, there's, there's good data. There's articles by Kim and Bailey that uh, these studied bracing uh, for acute fractures versus non-acute fractures. You, you, you hear people say, oh, you have to brace acutely and you have to use a hard brace or, or a soft brace, or you have to brace them for 12 weeks so the combination of two of these, and these are two independent articles, heart brace, soft brace, bracing for eight weeks, bracing for 12 weeks, bracing for acute fracture, for non-acute fractures, no difference, no difference, no difference, no difference, no difference, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. none. And there's a meta-analysis by Rezmuska that has to do with five articles 
evaluating optimal pain management. And for, you know, bracing rest, analgesics, uh, physical therapies, extension training, how well does this work for patients with vertebral fractures? Well, it, it, it says in, in the conclusion, it does not support optimal pain management for patients with vertebral fractures. There's a couple of other articles. I, I kind of, I do want to emphasize this. Um, Suzuki is a Japanese article. Uh, 107 patients wrote uh, a great article because these were treated with non-surgical management and followed up for a year with non-surgical management. You know, incredible discipline to be able to do this. Found that 76% of those patients that were followed for a year out of 107 still had the same or worse pain a year later than what they did coming in. Borneman did a paper of 60, uh, 65 patients and did six weeks of uh, non-surgical management followed by another optional six weeks if, if the patient would, would tolerate that. They found that out of those patients, one patient did well with non-surgical management within the first six weeks. Five people out of 65 did well overall. And their conclusion was that non-surgical management has no place in the treating patients with painful vertebral compression fractures. And what we've gone to do, we've gone to treating with just kind of rote prescriptions rather than uh, observation of the patient. So the UCLA RAND multi-specialty appropriateness criteria came out and basically it says it uses various criteria, various, uh, worsening kyphosis, uh, worsening pain, lack of clinical improvement, degree of pain, uh, functional impediments, and, and it goes through these criteria and there's seven criteria. And so it has to do with the patient and how bad they are and are they trending better are they not getting worse and, and trending worse? So it has to do with the clinical scenario and the overall impact on that patient, whether or not they should be treated with augmentation. It has nothing to do with time. As we just gave an example, we have sham level one evidence, acute, subacute, chronic, doesn't matter if it hurts, fix it. If it does hurt, don't fix it. But this has to do with the, the, the patient-centric treatment has nothing to do with time. It has nothing to do with rote prescriptions of how you should be treating patients, lumping everybody into one group. It has to be dealing with how adversely the patient is, is affected. And what that should tell you what you should do about it. I mean, I'm sorry, but isn't this just kind of common sense? Patient comes in and they can't walk. Right. I mean, you're going to put a brace right. on them, especially when there's very little to no support for bracing for the treatment of patients with painful vertebral compression fractures. Absolutely. Just knocks that out of the park. And I think it just brings up so much information uh, that's, that's important for the treating physicians to be aware of is there, these things have been studied, you know? And so most of the time, as you've said, uh, the naysayers are going to bring up these uh, 2009 sham studies, which, which have some issues of their own. And that's another thing that was discussed in the uh, vertebral augmentation textbook, an entire chapter on that from Dr. Hirsch, which I, which I think is great. And we'll also try yes. to uh, link some of those pictures and uh, some of those uh, papers in the show notes that you talked about. So I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, it, vertebral augmentation is just, it's, it's an amazing treatment. The data is there. And so, you know, we, we've talked about a lot of good data, a lot of good medical treatment. So now let's really focus on the interventions. This is what what I think everyone is here for. <laughs> that concludes part two with Dr. Beal. 
Stay tuned for part three coming out soon. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. Thank you.